Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chapter 12 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 12 When a human being has not slept for five or six nights, especially if that human being is a woman of romantic temperament, many queer things are bound to happen. The sensory nerves become susceptible to impression from all influences that exist, and from many that do not. The head swells to an enormous size with its unrelieved store. Bells and music, and the voice of an invisible person reading aloud an interminable and unintelligible book, throb on the tympanum. Men and women have an uncomfortable way of growing suddenly large and then suddenly small before the eyes. The flesh seems disintegrated into elemental and quivering molecules. A sixth sense riotously develops and makes the sufferer aware of a murderous devil dogging the footsteps. Under these conditions, to join in the small talk of a family dinner-table, do fancy work in the drawing-room, and play Grieg on the piano to a virtuoso, argues a considerable reserve fund of moral power. And this is found more commonly in women than in men. Until the day of Hugh's trial at the Old Bailey, Minna had successfully concealed her state from the friendly eyes of the Bebros. She looked wretchedly ill, but a cunning shade of carmine relieved her haggardness and caused her to appear nothing more than interestingly afflicted. When the pains of hell gat more closely round about her, she forced her lips into a photographic smile, thereby impressing the motherly Mrs. Bebro with a sense of her patience under tribulation. It was a gruesome comedy. At first, pure terror and avarice, bitter resentment of the wrongs Hugh had done her, and consequent blindness to the imminent peril in which he stood, had paralysed the moral sense. 
but later, after she had given evidence before the magistrates, she knew to the fool that she was playing the most desperate game that ever woman played for money. The gambler's instinct kept her mind clear. Strength of will saved her from collapse. Hugh acquitted all her money would be her own. Everything would be well. She would seek fresh scenes, blot this nightmare for ever from her life. Hugh condemned. She would do some mad deed to save him, summon Anna Kasaba from Syria, cast herself at the feet of the Home Secretary, surrender her thousands, and throw herself over Waterloo Bridge. This was a doom inevitable meted out to her, rather than a scheme which her brain had devised. All the passionate yet stubborn racial energies of her nature were concentrated upon the supreme effort of making her last bid for fortune. It was a fixed idea, focusing the distempered mind and magnetizing the exhausted flesh. Her last bid for fortune. She had made it. She found herself in Mrs. Bebrow's carriage with a motherly lady by her side. How she had been transported thither from the swaying, reeling court, she did not know. Mrs. Bebrow, with veil raised above red eyes, was holding her hand. Yet she had a vague knowledge that she had not fainted. "'There, there, it is over now, dear,' said her companion, kindly. "'It has been a trying time for you. We'll soon get home now, and a cup of tea and a lie-down will do you good.' "'Yes,' said Mena hoarsely. "'It will do me good.' "'Poor young man,' said Mrs. Bebrow. "'I nearly cried my eyes out over him.' "'It is a terrible thing.' said the girl, with set teeth, clenching the arm-strap with her free hand. "'And I'm sure he's innocent, poor fellow. I met him once, do you remember? Such charming manners, like a prince. And your poor dear father so fond of him, too. He can't have done it.' "'I know he is innocent,' said Mena. Hitherto Mrs. Bebra had been very considerate in her allusions to the dreadful topic. But now human nature asserted itself. She was anxious to sympathise, also to relieve pent-up emotions, for the fascination of a murder upon those intimately connected with it is intense. It is a splash of blood upon the grey veil of decorous life, and cannot be hidden. She took up her parable, discoursed at length, in a hushed voice, such as she considered reverend upon the Day of Atonement. And as she talked, in the cramped space of the noiselessly gliding broom, the horrors gradually grew upon the girl. "'We must buy an evening paper to see what happened before we got there. "'But I asked the policeman, and he said things were going very bad for the poor fellow. "'When once I got in I should have liked to have heard it all from the beginning. "'But it would have been too painful for you, poor dear child, "'to have done more than just given your evidence. "'I am glad you were able to say what you did about him. "'It may help him.' "'Yes, I tried to help him,' said Minna. "'The sides of the broom seemed to be narrowing upon her, "'like the Inquisition torture-chamber.' She suddenly thrust out her arms to keep them off. "'My dear child!' The question suddenly restored her balance, but she wanted to scream. Instead, she uttered a short laugh. "'I was thinking what a screaming farce this would make in hell,' she said gutturally. Mrs. Brebo looked at her inquiringly. The conception was beyond her. "'Yes, I am sure the evil one must have a hand in it,' she said at last, in a tone of assent. "'Circumstances are diabolically against him. "'Oh, it gives me the horrors to think of it, "'and how proud and handsome he looks standing there, "'as if every one was the dirt under his feet. "'Do you know, dear, about you and him, "'if he'd be one of our people, I could have fancied—' "'She broke off. 
the carriage was blocked at Piccadilly Circus. A newspaper boy darted up to the open window, flourishing an evening paper. "'Sonny to murder, latest details!' Minna threw herself aside onto Mrs. Bebro with a piercing shriek. There was a rush of startled and attracted bystanders. Mrs. Bebro stretched across Minna and pulled up the glass. The carriage moved on. She took the shaking girl in her arms and held her to her bosom, uttering motherly words of soothing. But that sudden shriek was the beginning of things. All the rest of the drive home she lay quite still, continuing the comedy and the mystification of the worthy, single-minded woman. But in order to do so, she was forced to keep her gloved fingers between her teeth. "'There, there,' continued Mrs. Bebro, petting her. "'Don't take on so, dear. We must take all the afflictions that the Lord sends us. Bear up, dear, under them like a Jewish maiden. We will put you to bed with something hot and nice to take, and you will sleep and wake up strong to-morrow. And so the good woman went on, seeking to heat the bayoneted body with housewifely sticking-plaster. But the girl was too far gone for heeding. The new horrors were upon her. As soon as they reached the house and had entered, she fled upstairs to her room with the black things at her heels. What passed then, when alone in her room she crouched before her terror, it is neither profitable nor decent to say. She had been strong up to a certain point, the girl to whose attainment she had set the marvellous mechanism of nerves and fibres. It was of her sex not to have calculated upon the beyond. She paid her sex's penalty. The inevitable law of inconsistency dragged her out, a wild, half-mad thing, an hour later, into the street. A handsome cab chanced to have just put down a fare at the next house. She entered, flung an address at the driver, and a moment later was being carried through whirling space. The first day of Hugh's trial was over. The streets rang with it. Reports were flashing through the kingdom on a thousand wires. It was the theme of all men's talk, a cause célèbre convulsing a vast society. The Attorney-General had delivered his opening address. One or two witnesses had been called, Minna Hart the last. The prisoner's prospects were damnably black. His friends regarded each other with pale lips. In the quiet Hertfordshire townlet two gentle ladies clung together in awful anguish of soul. The man himself lay in Holloway jail, mailed in a pride of steel. Irene and Gerard sat over their evening meal. She had been in court all the gnawing day and now, leaning back in her chair, dressed in a pink wrapper, a pretty coquetry of happier times, she looked almost diaphanous in her exhaustion. "'It's no use your not eating,' said Gerard. "'You'll make yourself ill.' She shook her head. "'I can't, Gerard. I'll have some beef tea or something presently. You go on. You are a man and have a big body to nourish.' She helped him from the dish in front of her, choosing in her wifely fashion the nicest-looking morsels, and then sat regarding him with the great eyes, admiring the strength of will that could compel appetite on so sorrowful an evening. She knew that rejection of food was silly, but the thought of it turned her sick. "'I feel ill,' she said. "'I always prided myself on being strong-minded and above affected feminine weaknesses, but now—' She shrugged her shoulders, and her lips moved in a wan smile. "'You'd better not come to the court to-morrow, if you don't feel up to it,' said Gerard. "'Oh, I should go if I were dying,' said Irene. "'It's the least thing we can do, go and cheer and keep the brave heart in him.' 
for with all your efforts, dearest, you have been able to do nothing. There's nothing to be done. I did what I could. Couldn't even get hold of your famous photograph. You must have destroyed that, too. So I couldn't trace the original. That cold, cruel, and exquisitely chiselled face, whose likeness she had seen in Hugh's rooms, had persistently assumed the identity of the woman for whose sake he was maintaining this silence. Even when she doubted the probability of her conjecture, the mysterious woman gradually revealed herself as a possessor of those ophidian eyes. They haunted her night and day. At last she doubted no longer. That was the woman. She had the face of one who could well see the man that loved her die before her eyes. As a forlorn hope, Irene had set Gerald upon the track of the photograph. But it had disappeared from Hugh's rooms. The disappearance, however, confirmed her certainty. There was a silence. Gerald went on with his dinner with the steadiness of a big-framed man who must eat. Irene pressed her hands over her burning eyeballs and leant forward on the table. She was suffering greatly. "'Will you be able to bear it, if the worst comes?' she asked, after a while. "'The worst hasn't come yet,' he replied, "'so it's no good talking about it.' His brow clouded. There was a deep note in his wife's voice that troubled him. She noticed the shadow. "'I must not pain you, Gerard. I've only known Hugh for a few years. He has been your friend all your life. I can't feel it all as you do.' "'We don't mend matters by dwelling upon them,' he said. "'Besides, if there really is a woman—' "'Oh, she must be in hell-fire now!' exclaimed Irene fiercely. "'A foretaste of the future!' "'Yes,' he said grimly. "'I shouldn't like to be in her shoes.' Another silence, this time broken by the rattle and sudden drag of a carriage drawing up at the front door. A moment later the faint whir of the electric bell downstairs. "'Who can that be?' cried Irene nervously. "'Hugh, dear, let me listen.' She strained her ears, rather overwrought. "'It is a woman. If it should be the woman—' "'Oh, nonsense, Irene,' said Gerard, with a man's contempt for the feminine fanciful. The maid-servant entered. "'Miss Hart, sir, wishes to speak to you.' "'Miss Hart!' echoed Irene, with a shade of disappointment. Then succeeded quick scorn for the silliness of her fluttering hope, a natural interest in the visitor's errand. "'What can she want?' Gerard rose from the table and went out into the hall. It was a broad passage, softly carpeted, well-warmed, furnished with oak settles and tables, here and there a great indoor plant all brightly lighted from a great central cluster of electric globes. Minna was standing near the door. As Gerard approached, she advanced hurriedly to meet him, her veil off, her dark hair disordered over her forehead, her fashionable, befeathered and beribboned hat awry. "'I've come. I want to—' She stopped dead, stared at him open-mouthed. He was somewhat bewildered. "'Yes?' he said in lame inquiry but she stood before him, trembling, uttering little sharp noises, like a terrier wistful to make his wants known, a horror in her eyes. "'Good God, what is the matter?' She could not reply. The horror faded into mere helpless fright. She raised her hands and twitched her fingers somewhat horridly in the air, and continued the little staccato moans. "'Rini!' cried Gerard sharply. "'Rini, come here!' Irene started at her husband's summons and ran out into the hall. 
but as soon as the girl saw her, she uttered a long, shivering moan and shrank against the wall. "'What is it?' "'The girl's got a fit, hysterics or something, said a couple of words, and then gasped at me. "'Poor child,' said Irene, touched. She approached her, but Minna waved her away with unreasoning terror, and edging backward met an oak settle on which she instinctively sat, and, crouching, continued her inarticulate cries. "'She evidently doesn't want you, Rene,' said Gerard. "'What the devil shall I do with her?' "'I'll go away for a minute. You must try and quiet her. I'll send Jane to you. Then I'll come back and see if she'll bear me to touch her. It's hysteria. The whole thing has been too much for her today. Poor little thing!' Irene made one more attempt, but seeing that her ministrations would perhaps render the girl violent, she retired and sent the maid in her place. Irene gone, Minna grew less excited, but she trembled and moaned and was apparently incapable of understanding words. Gerard arranged some cushions, and the servant administered smelling salts. On trying to pull off her gloves so as to chafe her hands, they found the fingers of one hand swollen. The kid was cut and bloody at the edges where she had bitten. Gerard left the two women, and, going into the dining-room, explained matters hurriedly to Irene. "'What the deuce is the meaning of it?' "'She's overwrought, poor child. Think what a terrible ordeal she went through in the witness-box to-day. Hugh was very friendly at the Lindens, you know.' "'Do you think she was in love with Hugh?' "'Perhaps,' said Irene, rather wearily. "'But what did she want me for?' "'All hysterical, dear.' She knew you were Hugh's dearest friend, came to ask whether you thought him likely to be condemned, then broke down. You see what poor silly stuff we women are made of. At any rate, you don't fall to gibbering like a monkey at the sight of a snake, said Gerard, accepting his wife's explanation. And now, what are we to do with her? She won't let me come near her, or else I would nurse her, said Irene. What do you think? Her cab is still waiting. I could take her home to her friends. Would it hurt her? No, said Irene. It might do her good, the drive, but you you are so tired, dear. Oh, Lord, I'd sooner take her away than have her fooling about here, said Gerard. And he went back again to the hall. Thus Minna was restored to the scared and anxious Bebrose, who put her to bed and sent for a doctor. The hysteria, on whose brink she had long been trembling, had at last engulfed her, and hour by hour she sank deeper into the abyss, where all the horrors fought for her. But the significance of her foiled errand did not reach her consciousness. That night, as Gerard slept stertorously by her side, Irene lay throbbingly awake, aching with suspense. The awful peril of the man whom Gerard loved dulled her reminiscence of the strange visit of the hysterical girl. It never crossed her mind, that the Lord had delivered her enemy into her hands. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 13 It was the second day of the trial. Irene held her husband's hand in a nervous grasp. They were sitting together among a crowd of well-dressed men and women, many of them friends of Hugh, in the reserved places on the judge's bench. Yesterday, in her unfamiliarity with the historic court of the Old Bailey, its first aspect had shocked her sense of the fitness of things. 
She vaguely imagined a vast hall, stately and imposing paraphernalia, all the pomp and circumstance of the law. But this dingy, murky, incommodious chamber, furnished with just the bare necessities for procedure, and crammed with perspiring men, seemed more like a third-rate auction-room than the most solemn court of justice in the land. It was mean and cramped, even God's light cut off from it by the eternal blighting shadow of Newgate. Instead of spacious galleries she had seen little yellow boxes by the roof, above the dock, surmounted by vague, agglutinated masses of faces. The nearness of everything to her, consequent upon the small area and great depth of the court, had affected her with a strange feeling of oppression. Today the surprise had passed, the scene had grown so intensely familiar that she seemed to have borne its burden about her for years, but the feeling of oppression still remained. The nameless atmosphere of the jail, sullen and hopeless and tainted, hung pall-alike over everything. The well of the court was crowded. At narrow tables sat the row of barristers in wig and gown, behind them on the short slope abruptly terminating at the whitewashed wall, the pressmen, behind whom again more barristers and members of the public, all standing in an insignificant but suffocatingly packed crowd. Below her, Irene saw the bobbing wig of the clerk of Arraigns and the bald head of Haraway at the solicitor's table. Beyond, in the front row of the lines of counsel, stood the Attorney-General examining the witness. On her right, the judge, broad-wigged, red-robed, scratching loud with quill-pen. Lord Mayor and Alderman in civic robes, with their cynical nosegays of flowers in front of them. On her right, beneath the dim, closed window, the padded Jew butler in the witness-box. Opposite, the jury, twelve commonplace but hard and practical-looking men, as London juries generally are. And next, the vast square dock, glass-panelled, grim, overlooked by the inexorable clock-face, which has marked the last hours of life's chances for so many tortured men and women. And in the dock, guarded by the warder, the erect and somewhat haughty figure of the prisoner. On Irene's arrival in court this morning, Haraway had handed her a little pencilled note from Hugh. "'Bless you, dear Irene, for coming to cheer and strengthen me. Before it was best for me to fight it out alone. But now the sight of you gladdens me. I am doing everything for what I consider the best. Don't fret. Gardner will pull me through.' And when he had entered the dock, his eyes had travelled to hers with swift instinct, and for many seconds remained fixed. Whatever possibilities of guilt may have lingered in her mind were swept away in that mutual gaze. She saw his innocence deep in her soul, and her heart yearned towards him. She knew now, past all doubt, that he was risking his life to save some wretched woman's honour. The woman's dastardly silence was all but inconceivable, but the man's chivalry blazed before the world. Her eyes had glistened with a moment's exultation. Here was a man of unfaltering strength, a friend to be thrillingly proud of, to die for, gladly, if need were. He became a hero, worthy of the devotion of others. The heroic chord in her nature had been struck, and its inarticulate music had sung in her heart. She had murmured her emotion to Gerard, but before he could reply, the entrance of the judge and the rising of the court had broken the momentary spell. Her anxiety had returned with a sickening rush, and Hugh became once more, as all through the aching hours of yesterday, 
the dear friend exposed to public degradation and to deadly peril. The examination of Samuels continued. He described the finding of the body, the attitude in which it lay, the position of the heavy poker with which, according to the theory of the prosecution, the murderous blow was struck, all the harrowing details that had been so often laid before the law. In a faltering voice he narrated the history of the evening, the merry dinner-party, the sound of the lively music upstairs, Minna's mad tarantella, the angry words he had overheard on coming into his master's study, the permission to go to bed, his last sight of the prisoner at ten minutes past eleven, his after-meeting with Mr. Hart in the bedroom at five minutes to twelve, when the latter had taken the ledger from his bedroom safe and gone downstairs again. Familiar as all these facts were to Irene, every fresh statement put them in a still more terrible light. They seemed to leave Hugh no single avenue for escape. He was hedged round by a pitiless fence of incontrovertible testimony. Once Hugh looked swiftly from the window to her, and then back again. The lance appealed to her like that of a noble animal caught in a trap. Yet he bore the ordeal bravely, twirling now and then a disdainful moustache. It was the man's nature to carry his burdens defiantly. Minna's appearance in the witness-box the day before had lashed him to a fury of pride. He would rather die a thousand deaths than use her contaminated soul to save his life. At times he looked round the familiar precincts with a smile almost of mockery. The topsy-turvidom of his position contained elements of the grotesque. The central sphere of his life's ambitions, by some wizard touch, had become the theatre of his shame. The judge, before whom he had most often pleaded, was now trying him as a murderer. The brother barristers below were cordial acquaintances, linked to him by the honourable traditions of a beloved profession. The scene shimmered before his eyes in whimsical unreality. But then, suddenly, a blaze of associations would disclose by lurid contrast the pathos of his ruin. It was terribly real. Once a lump rose in his throat, and he steadied himself by the handrail. On the last occasion of his presence in this place, he had delivered an impassioned harangue on behalf of a poor trembling devil of an embezzling clerk who had clutched at that same handrail for support. He remembered how he had wondered at the craven spirit that could thus make public exhibition of its terror. The memory was a whip to his pride. The butler's evidence was black against him. What saving admission could Gardner, his counsel, ablest cross-examiner of the day, though he was, get out of this man? Wearily he glanced at the window, dwelling with a shiver on the grey, gaunt walls of Newgate, the last abode of the condemned man's brief span of life, hiding the condemned cell and the gallows, and on the irony of the doves of Newgate courtyard that flashed their white wings in the overshadowed air. It was then that he turned the quick glance at Irene, which she intercepted and interpreted as one of appeal. Gardner rose to cross-examine the butler. There was little hope of shaking the evidence. "'Oh, God, how my heart aches!' said Irene to Gerard, pressing her hand to her bosom. "'Hush,' she replied. "'Don't give way. Let us follow this closely.' But the meshes seemed tighter drawn than ever around Hugh. Her nerve began to fail. Outside the bright spring sunshine flooded the sky. Not a ray entered the murky court, where the heat was oppressive, the air stifling. The judge, notorious for his horror of draughts, had caused all the windows to be closed. 
Irene gasped for breath. A faint nausea made her head swim. She closed her eyes and leaned against her husband. For a few moments she lost consciousness. Gerard, intent upon the evidence, remained unaware of her condition. Suddenly a confused murmur of voices aroused her with a start. Samuels was leaving the witness-box. Gardner was regarding Hugh with a little air of triumph. The mass of wigged heads below her was agitated like the backs of a flock in motion. "'What's the matter? I wasn't listening,' she whispered. Gerard, not catching her words, concluded they contained merely some expression of emotion, and nodded to her vaguely. Soon absorbed in the evidence of the next witness, Parsons, the porter at the mansion, Irene let her question pass, and forgot the incident. Thus a material point for Hugh's defence, an admission by Samuels that he'd heard a noise, like the slamming of the front door at half-past eleven, the hour when Hugh claimed to have left the house, had escaped her cognizance. The only point in his client's favour that Gardner elicited from the porter was the statement that the brown paper parcel which the prisoner was carrying on the morning of the murder was neatly tied with string, and in no wise resembled a hastily wrapped-up bundle of documents. Other witnesses followed. Again Irene felt the deadly faintness coming over her. It was nature's penalty for insufficient food, sleep, and air. She struggled against it with all her strength. "'Shall I take you out?' asked Gerard, noticing her pallor. She shook her head. She would sit through it to the end. Never had she felt such fierce contempt for her sex's weakness as then. It was maddening to feel her nerve yielding and her brain glowing dizzy. Was she going to follow the example of the shallow, hysterical girl of last night? Were all women constituted alike to snap like lath at the first serious strain? The thought was abhorrent. For over an hour she sat there, scarcely heeding the proceedings, her whole mind concentrated upon the efforts to retain her consciousness. And during this hour Mrs. Parsons had stated that she had found among the prisoner's linen a sleeping suit which had been missing for some time, and Israel Hart's confidential clerk had sworn to the valueless nature of the five-thousand-pound security. The endless cross-fire of question and answer drew to a conclusion. The charge was read, and the counsel for the prosecution submitted his case to the judge. Gardiner rose. Irene, with a great effort, regained her self-control, and regarded him anxiously. "'I call no witnesses for the defence, my lord,' said he. Irene, aghast, uttered a sharp cry of pain and dismay. To her mind, unversed in legal methods, this proceeding seemed like capitulation. Was Gardner going to make no show of fight for his friend's life? She questioned her husband in a fever of anxiety. He is relying on his speech to-morrow to devaluate the evidence. What witnesses can he bring forward? But Irene was not reassured. She lay back with white lips and panting bosom. The halter was already round Hugh's neck. To her strained eyes his features seemed to have undergone an awful change since the morning. Her vision invested him with imaginary haggardness and death-like pallor. Again she felt faint and closed her eyes. When she opened them again, the Attorney-General was addressing the jury. Now he had more scope for emotion than in his opening. He spoke of the prisoner's position as a barrister, of the terrible pain it had been to him to lead this prosecution. All the unreasoning feminine in Irene blazed into inward reproach. It was hypocrisy, baseness, a hireling's part. 
no noble or generous nature could have undertaken the task. He spoke of duty, of the law, of the necessity of sacrificing private feelings to the interests of justice. A justice compelled him to point out the prisoner as a man guilty of a terrible crime. He proceeded to the evidence, recapitulated the details, constructed a romance of evil passions, drew a picture of the imaginary scene, the quarrel over the five thousand pounds, the insulting word, the dastardly and fatal blow. Hugh, leaning over the railing of the dock, gazed at him intently with set teeth. Throughout all the sordid commonplaces of the trial he maintained his bearing of scorn. But now the touch of a lurid eloquence gripped his nature. His breath came hard and fast in speechless indignation and horror at the vivid fable. The crowded court was deathly still. Irene gripped her husband's hand, looking now at the denunciatory attitudes of the speaker, now at the intense steel of the denounced man's eyes, now at the set faces of the jury as they sat under the spell of the fierce oratory. "'Gerard, they will kill him. I see condemnation in their eyes,' she whispered hoarsely. "'Damn them,' he answered, carried away by the excitement. "'I believe they will.' "'Can nothing human save him?' "'I would give ten years of my life.' She tightened her clasp on his great hand by way of sympathy and acknowledgment. A little sound of sobbing was heard. It came from a lady next but one to Irene, Mrs. Gardner, the wife of Hugh's counsel and friend. Irene was dry-eyed. Suddenly she felt strong, with her young blood thrilling through her veins. Again she whispered, "'Gerard, would you give all you held most dear in the world?' "'Of course,' he replied. The sonorous voice went on. "'The defence have called no witnesses. There are none to call. Let them prove that the prisoner was elsewhere between eleven o'clock and seven o'clock on that fatal night, even between one and five, the limits set by the medical evidence, and the case falls to the ground. But they cannot do so. It has been hinted that a woman's honour is in question. That will be urged in his defence. But does the woman live who is so vile, so despicable, as to let her reputation stand in the way of saving an innocent man from the most shameful of deaths? It is unthinkable. Human nature does not sink to such degradation of cowardice. When that blow was struck, the prisoner was in no woman's arms. He paused to take breath. There was a flash of silence. And then a woman's voice broke out into a hoarse cry, as if the words tore their way through a gasping throat. He was in mine. Another silence, this time longer, one of dumb bewilderment. Every eye was straining at the tall, quivering woman who stood with burning eyes and parted lips, throwing down her defiance. Then swift reaction swept through the assembly. The sudden emotional tragic in a time of strain brings elemental, inarticulate sounds from men's hearts. Confusion of voices reigned. Some broke into silly laughter. Gardner leapt to his feet, quivering like a racehorse, gesticulating with his hands, uttering idle words of appeal that were lost in the clamour. Gerard Merriam, too, was standing, had seized his wife's arm. "'Have you gone mad?' he shouted hoarsely. He wrenched her down to her seat. She shook off his grasp and sprang up again, facing the court. Before her will, his gave way. He sat and gnawed at his fingers in a frenzy of agitation. 
The first amazement had held Hugh speechless. For a moment he stared at her stupidly. Then amid the hubbub he burst into passionate cries of denial. He would have leaped from the dock had not iron arms encircled him and rough voices in his ear commanded silence. He obeyed, his heart thumping like a piston-rod. Then Gardner and Haraway met by the side of the dock. Hugh leaned over the rail, at once engaged in excited discussion. "'You are mad!' cried Gardner, at last, in his ear. "'I shall save your life, and you can shoot me afterwards, if you like.' The solicitor and in himself returned to their places. The judge thundered for order. The hubbub waned to a murmur. He threatened to clear the court. A scuffle near the door drew general attention to the fact of an ejection. Peace was restored. Men wiped streaming foreheads and looked about with eager eyes. Gardner, with wigger eye, had the first word. "'My lord, I beg permission to call that lady as a witness.' "'I protest, my lord,' cried Hugh, in torture of soul. "'Her tale is a lie. I will not have her commit perjury for my sake.' The judge rebuked him. The management of the case was in the hands of counsel. They only could be heard. "'But for God's sake, my lord!' cried Hugh again. Sternly the judge threatened forcible measures. Hugh cast a wild, despairing glance around the hushed and wandering court, threw up his hands in a passionate gesture of appeal to Irene, who stood transfigured before him, and then with a groan sank into his chair and buried his face in his arms. He was powerless. The prisoner being effectually silenced, the judge bent his heavy brows upon Irene. "'Will you repeat that statement on oath?' She nodded her head thrice in affirmation before she could articulate the yes. There was a consultation between the judge and the Attorney-General. The latter had no objection to the request of the defence. Irene stepped into the witness-box. She took the oath, shivered, and shot a swift glance of appeal at her husband. He sat glaring at her like a man stupefied, his eyes crossed in a kind of glazed squint, his body bent forwards, still biting at his fingers. The self-accusing cry had sprung from resistless impulse. The heroic instinct, awakened earlier, had been clamouring in the darkness. It rose to the lightning flash of suggestion. Hugh was doomed. Here was a splendid rescue. It had been a moment of tumultuous rapture. Simultaneously had come the conviction of Gerard's acquiescence, his equal gladness to sacrifice his honour for his friend's life. Had not Hugh once faced death for Gerard? Had not Gerard just said that he would give all he had, most dear in the world, to save him? It had been an exquisite moment of faith, during which the world had grown young again, and radiant deeds were the commonplaces of life. All had crowded in the instant upon her mind. And the words had gone from her. She scarce knew how. They had sounded strange in her ears. But the silence the cold, dispassionate accents of the judge, brought to the surface her instincts as a nineteenth-century woman, cultivated under a thousand complex conditions. She realised the gravity of the step she was taking. All her faintness had gone under the magic of her inspiration, but the great and sudden effort to concentrate her intellectual powers checked the thrill in her veins. To be heroic in cold blood is the highest grade. She answered calmly. Her questioner was less collected than herself. Only a woman could have committed the splendid perjury. Under examination she told with faultless precision 
the story of the fabulous adultery. The prisoner's Orestian friendship with her husband, his love for her before her marriage, the later and guilty passion on her own side, the rare chance of that fatal night when her husband was in Edinburgh. Solemnly she swore that the prisoner arrived at her house at a quarter to twelve and stayed there until the morning, leaving just before the servants were astir. Her manner gave the story the seal of truth. The Attorney-General cross-examined. In no particular could he shake her statement. Why had she not come forward before? She urged the scandal, the pain to her husband, the overmastering hope grown to conviction that the evidence against the prisoner was too slight to harm him. How did he enter your house? He had a latch-key, always in his possession. Was this the first time it had been used for this purpose? She set her teeth and answered, No. Gardner re-examined. No third party was aware of the existence of this liaison. The utmost precaution and secrecy had been maintained. Was her husband in court? Yes. She went down the steps and back to her place, like one in a dream. Gerard remained motionless by her side, as if unconscious of her presence. Gardner, wishing to have corroborative evidence, sought permission to call Miriam. The latter assented, went into the witness-box. Irene's heart fluttered faintly with happiness. Gerard had accepted the sacrifice. He would play his part as she had done here. Yet his face was clouded and heavy, and he answered doggedly with the air of a man who had formed a resolve in the caverns of his soul. He was absent in Edinburgh on the night in question. For some time past he had been uneasy as regards his wife's relations with Coleman. The revelation was not an absolute surprise to him. Coleman had been for many years almost a member of his household. By virtue of his intimacy he possessed a latch-key. No further questions were put. The opposite side declined to cross-examine him. Gerard, looking neither to right nor left, walked out of the court. Irene was left alone. She could not understand Gerard's neglect. Surely he meant her to follow. She rose and took a sweeping survey of the scene. Counsel were whispering eagerly. The jury crowded together in animated discussion, the front row leading over the backs of the seats. Many eyes were fixed admiringly upon herself. The judge, seen in obscure profile, was turning over his notes. The air still seemed impregnated with the odour of the jail. Hugh sat in the dock, his face still buried in his arms, in an attitude of supreme dejection. And behind him stood his blue-habited, imperturbable guards. Then, with bowed head, she hurried across the court, leaving by the door through which Gerard had disappeared. He was not outside in the witness's lobby, waiting for her as she had expected. She inquired of the policeman on duty. He had seen him pass, pointed out the way he had gone. She followed his directions, found herself in the courtyard. Gerard was nowhere to be seen. She hung about for a while, went outside and walked up and down the hurrying pavement, waited again by the entrance. But no Gerard. Disappointed and anxious, she retraced her steps, up worn, bleak stairs, through gloomy corridors, and finally lost herself completely. But she hurried on with downcast eyes. At last she arrived at an entrance guarded by a policeman. It was not the door with which she was familiar. A sudden failing seized her. She could not return to her seat and present herself alone before the gaze of all those men. The valentist of woman has small feminine cowardices, which she does not seek to overcome. 
to leave the precincts was equally impossible. She resolved to wait, and walked bravely up and down the lobby. A few patient figures of men and women were sitting by the wall. Scarcely speculating who these might be, she sat down finally by an old man, poorly clad, who was leaning forward, his chin supported on his hands, regarding the pavement with lacklustre eyes. Then, for the first time, she was able to think with some coherence of the stupendous nature of the deed she had just committed. She put her ungloved hands over her burning eyes, as if to shut out the scene that had blazed before them a few moments ago. The words of the council, her own replies, reverberated distinct in her ears. She would have given a year of her life for Gerard's protecting presence. So absorbed was she that she did not hear a rough voice calling out a strange name, nor noticed the old man by her side rise in weary obedience to the summons. When, later, she withdrew her hands from her face, she did not heed his absence. Now and then a barrister or a document-laden clerk hurried past her. She waited in a torture of anxiety. At last the policeman approached and asked her if she was a witness in this case. Her reply gave him a clue to her interest. He smiled indulgently. This was the witness's lobby of the recorder's court. The Sunnington case was being tried in the chief court, before the judge, just the other end of the old bailey. Irene stamped her foot with vexation. Suspense had made her lose count of time. It seemed as if she had been absent for hours. What had happened? She must know. And here she had been waiting, like a fool, in the wrong part of the building. Direct me to the door the prisoner will come out by. The policeman was still indulgent. If he's sentenced or the case is adjourned, you'll go down the dock and you won't see him. If he gets off, he may leave by the main exit. That's what I want, said Irene. He gave her the necessary directions. She hurried away, half running. At last she perceived the cause of her error. The chief court was only up one flight of stairs, and she passed it by in her agitation. The door and its guardian appeared in sight. But at that moment it was thrown open, and a stream of men issued forth. The recognition of her was a signal for wild cheering and a rush towards her. She turned to fly. Someone overtook her, grasped her arm. It was a young barrister, an acquaintance. Let me take you out quietly. You will be mobbed by well-meaning enthusiasts. The news that she was in front had spread. There was a tumult of cheers behind her. She pressed on with her guide. Her brain reeled. She dared scarcely ask the reason of the demonstration. In this first moment of confusion it was merely significant of her own popularity. The thought was burning fire. A few steps brought them into the council's and solicitors' lobby, at the end of which was quiet. The young man looked at her glowingly. "'Thank God they might have hanged an innocent man!' She stared at him, only half comprehending. "'Yes, don't you know? Of course, he is acquitted. Your evidence!' The young fellow stopped short, blushed. He was a fair youth, and his white wig made him fairer, realising the delicate ground. "'Yes, my evidence,' replied Irene, pausing. "'I've been away from the court.' "'Did not the prosecution all of a heap? Hannah threw up the case. The judge directed a formal verdict. Thank God!' "'Then he is free.' She staggered under the realisation, leaned for a moment against the wall. From a little distance off came the noise of voices and footsteps of people leaving the court. 
twos and threes of barristers passed by and eyed her curiously. "'Let me put you into a cab,' said the young man. Th "'Thank you. Yes,' she faltered. Taking his arm, faint and dizzy and half-closing her eyes, she allowed him to lead her by a staircase unused by the public to the street. As she entered the cab, a few persons recognised her and set up a cheer and waved their hats. The cab drove off. The ceaseless, roaring traffic of Holborn seemed the phantasmagoria of a strange world. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 14 Heartsick with longing for Gerard, she opened her front door. A maid-servant met her in the hall. "'Has your master come home?' "'He's been in and gone out again, ma'am. He told me to let you have this note when you arrived.' She handed her mistress the brass letter-tray where it was lying. Irene tore open the envelope with shaking fingers. It contained a hasty line scribbled in pencil. "'I'm going away for the night. We'll see you in the morning. G.M.' She staggered as if he had struck her. What did it mean? It was difficult enough to grasp the fact. To pierce to the underlying motive was beyond her powers. A nameless fear assailed her. How could she live alone through all the hours until tomorrow morning? She stared at the words until they danced before her eyes. The fact was plain. In this hour of her most awful need of him, he had gone from her side. Her dismay was childlike in its piteousness. "'Did your master take any luggage with him?' she asked, steadying her voice. "'Just his dressing-bag,' replied the maid. Then, breaking through the restraint she had imposed upon herself, "'I don't, ma'am. Mr. Coleman?' "'He's acquitted, Jane,' said Irene. The maid burst into tears after the manner of her class. Suspense had been great in the kitchen, where Hugh Coleman had been invested with mythical excellences. The cook, upon whom he had never set eyes, had been weeping intermittently all day long. A fortiori, the naturalness of the emotions of the parlour-maid who had waited upon him at table and helped him on with his overcoat. It is odd how readily domestic servants receive the impression of a guest's personality, and how genuinely their sympathy or antipathy may be aroused. Perhaps, like silly women, they viewed Hugh in too heroic a light. But nevertheless the girl's outburst was sincere. Irene, touched for the moment, forgot her anxiety. But it returned swiftly as soon as she was alone. She twisted the paper nervously in her hands, sat down upon one of the oak settles, and tried to reason away the fear. Presently she rose and went upstairs to her room. She was desperately tired. She unpinned her veil, made a weary pretense of rolling it up, and then sank down helpless on the edge of the bed, her hands in her lap. In this relaxed moral condition a woman cries softly, if a sympathetic arm, man's or woman's, is put around her. When she is alone, however, crying seems futile and undignified. She arises soon afterwards, as Irene did, and mechanically changes her dress for a comfortable wrapper, freshens her face with the trivial comfort of her powder-puff softness, tidies her hair with dull, half-observant glances in her mirror, puts eau de cologne upon a clean handkerchief, and wearily hangs up her discarded garments. The lighter feminine instincts float like straws upon the surface, 
beneath which other things have sunk for very heaviness. After this she went downstairs to the smoking-room, whither Jane brought her an egg beaten up in brandy. The girl hung about, eager for a word of detail concerning the trial. The expectation was pathetic, considering its impossibility of fulfilment. Irene dismissed her gently, and took the stimulant, of which she stood in great need. And then she thought, hard and anxiously. A dreadful sense of loneliness crept over her, even more intense than that which she had once felt before, when she had gone on board the steamer at Bombay, journeying from one grave to another. It seemed impossible that Gerard should not be returning. She had never craved him so much as in this hour of crisis. Again she read the now crumpled sheet containing his curt message. Her blind faith in his acquiescence in the sacrifice was rudely shaken. He had gone from her in a passion of anger. There was no other solution. She felt sick with doubt and dread. Her eyes wandered round the room, trying to derive assurance of his return from the familiar external signs of his occupancy. His fishing-rod stood in a corner in their neat canvas cases. His cartridge-belt hung festooned beneath a hunting-trophy on the wall, surmounted by a fox's mask. Opposite by the mantelpiece stretched his overflowing pipe-rack. On a little table by the side of the great armchair, whose well-worn seat shared the impress of his huge limbs, still remained his pipe of the morning, with the ashes half fallen out. His slippers lay beneath the chair. Irene looked at them pathetically, and again felt the very miserable desire to cry. The trivial generally tends the floodgates of tears. In the horrors of a siege, women who have viewed, brave-eyed, men butchered before their faces, have been known to break down at the sight of a wrecked canary cage. Presently Jane came in with a letter. A commissionaire had brought it and was waiting in the hall for an answer. Irene took it from the girl's hand with a quick heart-throb. From Gerard, doubtless explanatory, perhaps utterly reassuring. But as soon as her eyes fell upon the envelope, she recognised Hugh's writing, and felt miserably disappointed. The letter was addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Merriam. It ran, Dearest ones, the terrible price you pay for my life makes me shrink from crossing your threshold unbidden. For such a deed it is idle to talk of gratitude. Send for me, and I shall come. But God knows what I can say to you both. Hugh. She sat for a few moments staring before her. Jane stood by, respectful and dutiful, holding the brass salver by her side. Suddenly Irene rose, and standing at her writing-table dashed off a hasty line. They would have paid the price fifty times over for his sake. She would send for him soon, but to-night she was exhausted. He must be bright and happy. The bond between the three was only firmer and dearer. The maid took the note to the waiting messenger, and Irene sank again into her chair by the fire. She felt unspeakably grateful to Hugh for writing. How could she have received him? How explain Gerard's absence? The thought of a meeting was a burning fire in cheeks and bosom. Fortunately, it was avoided. She thanked the tact that always underlay and checked Hugh's impulses. Another man, equally generous, would have rushed to throw himself at her feet. The evening wore on. She sat down alone to the inevitable dinner, and forced herself to eat. Once she caught Jane looking at her curiously. The details of the great trial's sensational finish had reached Sunnington 
and were the theme of the servants' hall. She read amused speculation and virtuous approbation, subtly mingled, in the girl's glance. She flushed miserably in spite of effort, and her throat contracted at the morsel she was about to swallow. Perhaps her servants would give her notice. The ironical pettiness of the thought faintly amused her, and restored self-composure. The meal over, she returned to the smoking-room fire, and nursed her heartache till bedtime. Hugh's letter, often re-read, awakened a desire for his companionship, vague and scarcely formulated as an idea. Yet she would have shrunk in strange terror at his approach. Woman-like, she longed for a tender word or gentle touch, and strove to materialise it out of Hugh's letter. And she was conscious of a little disappointment, so little that she would not admit it to her reason, in the joint address. Her reason admired the delicacy with which Hugh had conveyed his appreciation of their combined purpose, but her woman's instinct felt the individual lack. Ever so subtle an acknowledgment of her separate action would have been balm to the bruised spirit. She slept fitfully, was up betimes, disregarding a racking headache. Gerald would come. She would have speech with him, learn the unimagined worst. No letter from him. Her pile of correspondence, envelopes briefly surveyed, remained unopened. She had not the heart to read letters. All her throbbing thoughts were Gerard's. He was deeply angered. She would humble herself. Yet human certainty had never been so rigidly absolute as hers had been in the oneness of their sacrifice when she had offered up his honour and her virtue. She could come to no conclusion. For an hour she stood at the dining-room window, which looked upon the little circular drive in front of the house, watching for her husband's arrival. Her every fibre yearned and dreaded. At last he appeared, swung open the gate and strode in with a quick glance at the pale face behind the window. Irene's hand flew to her heart. She stepped back, pierced by the glance, and waited. In another moment Gerard was in the room. He clapped his hat on the table and advanced a pace or two, fixing her with his shifty blue eyes. "'Now let us have it out at once. What the devil have you got to say for yourself?' The look, the tone, the insult dashed upon her like a douche of icy water upon a hysterical girl. She drew herself up, quivering with a flash in her eyes. "'You are forgetting yourself, Gerard.' Yet an instant afterwards she softened and humbled herself, as a woman does towards the man she has been yearning for. She went to him with outstretched arms, pleading in her face. "'Forgive me, dear, forgive me!' He thrust her away, rather roughly. "'Don't make a scene. I hate it. That's why I stayed away, so as to put a cooling night in front of our interview. But I want an explanation, and I think I'm entitled to it.' Irene looked at him helplessly. She was on the high seas, rudderless. "'I thought you would willingly have given your life for Hugh,' she said. "'You were deeply moved, said there was nothing you would not give. The scheme flashed on me. I never doubted your assent. As God hears me, Gerald, I felt the certainty like an inspiration.' "'Damn funny inspiration to fancy that I would tamely agree to your infidelities with another man.' "'But didn't you understand?' she gasped. "'Perfectly.' but I'm not the sort of man to share my wife with anybody, even with my dearest friend. The world was rocking. Her senses swam. She lost heed of surroundings, found herself saying in a silly way, But it was all a lie, Gerard. I thought you knew. 
He looked at her for a moment or two, and then thumped his fist on the dining-table. The shock upset a little apernia of flowers, and the water flooded the dark red table-cover. "'And I say it wasn't a lie. There!' Gerard. The voice, pitched high, ran through the house. A cry of terror, incredulity, reproach. They remained looking at each other, he doggedly unmoved, with slightly crossed eyes, she in blank anguish of amazement. "'I don't beat about the bush. I come straight to the point. You and Coleman carried on behind my back. Do you suppose I was fool enough not to see it? I was only biding my time. Came sooner than I expected, a coup de théâtre. I thought something was wrong by the unnecessary state of excitement you have been in the last few weeks. Must have been exciting, with a vengeance. All I can say is that I admire your pluck. How long has this been going on? Tell me. It was a, a mere invention, pure perjury, to, to, to save his life. Your friend, my friend. What am I to say? Oh, my God, Gerard! she burst out. You're not in earnest. You're angry, saying this to try me for, for some reason that I don't understand. The thought of his belief in her sworn statement had never entered her mind during the most fear-wracked moment. The fact dazed her. He shook his great shoulders impatiently. You'd better give it up and answer my question. I have answered it. My whole life with you has answered it. It has, he sneered. A more fool I for not having taken the answer before. And I tell you, I was getting pretty sick of it. The eternal Hugh, Hugh, damn him, in every sentence you uttered, the everlasting sight of him in the house. But I thought he was as dear to you as I was, broke in Irene, aghast. It suited your purpose to think so. I never told you so. I'm sick of it, utterly sick of it, sick of your film families of philosophy and the higher life and noble work in the world and all that rot. And now I'm heartily glad it's over. Over? she echoed falteringly. Yes, over. I'm not going to play the injured husband. I'm going to be free, to do what I like and live as I like, and you can go off with your lover and help him to write his measly poetry. It's been choking me for years. I'm going to get free of it all. Irene listened, stupefied. He seemed some unutterable stranger that had obtained access to her presence. She knew not how. He thrust his hands into his pockets and turned away. The gesture was familiar. Times out of number he had stood so, looming huge between herself and the light. It touched a tender chord, brought back the Gerard she had known and worshipped. Again she flew to him, caught him by the lapels of his coat, and broke into a loud cry. But Gerard! My husband! Am I a woman capable of such things? He unloosened her hands and drew apart from her. All women are the same, Madonnas or Messalinas. Then you— I tell you I hate him, said Gerard vindictively. Then, suddenly, beneath his furious anger, Irene saw the man as he was, and her idol lay shivered at her feet. Was that why you never told me of his having saved your life? Taken aback for the moment, he looked at her inquiringly. "'Because you hated him and were jealous of him all the time?' "'I told you my reasons. I haven't come now to discuss them.' He crossed the room and caught up his hat. "'I wish I had not come at all,' he said, with a drop in his tone to sullenness. "'I should have sent my solicitor. Your brazening it out made me lose my temper.' Irene interposed herself between him and the door. 
"'We can't part like this,' she said in a queer voice. "'Tell me what your wishes are, and I'll try to obey them.' Gerard reflected for a moment, checking a spiteful outburst. He had said his say. Further display of anger was futile. Also he knew something of Irene, and was aware that plain words were fall coldest upon her intelligence. "'After what has passed,' he said, "'I can't live in this house while you are here.' "'I will leave it to-day,' said Irene. "'Take your time. I don't want to inconvenience you more than I can help.' "'You are very kind, Gerard,' said Irene, in bitter irony. "'I will have everything that belongs to you dispatched wherever you think fit,' he continued, unheeding. "'And then?' He shrugged his shoulders, looking at her askance for a second. "'Then I get my divorce.' Her mind dazed by exhaustion and the pain and the successive cataclysms of this disastrous interview, had not travelled a second beyond the lurid present. The bald word was a new shock, the final sledgehammer blow that sent love reeling. She grew very white. "'You intend to divorce me?' she said slowly. "'That is my intention,' he replied, somewhat abashed before her staring eyes. Irene shrank away from the door, and turned gropingly towards a couch against the wall. Gerard lingered for a moment on the threshold. Then he left her. She sank upon the couch, shuddering and faint, looking helplessly at the upset flowers and the soaking pool of water upon the table-cover. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 15. An aunt, with whom she had lived during the brief interval between her return from India and her marriage, granted her a temporary asylum. If you will do with me until I can find some place of my own, said Irene, I shall be grateful. My house is always open to dear Robert's child, said Miss Beechcroft. She was an austere woman of primitive views, to whom Irene had ever been a puzzle. As the heroine of this amazing scandal, her niece was a dark and inscrutable enigma. Its transcendency bewildered her. Having no moral foot-rule capable of measuring it, she did not attempt the obviously futile. She waived explanatory details. Her dead brother's only child craved shelter. She gave it willingly. Her own companionship she withheld as much as possible, for a variety of reasons. Not the least was the gentlewoman's respect for the dignity of suffering. The freedom from misdirected sympathy was a boon to Irene. She needed solitude. Her universe had crashed about her ears. At first she was dazed, stunned, scarce knowing where to turn amid the shapeless wreckage. Few things could exemplify the cataclysm. Overwhelming proof coming to a Paul at the end of his life that there was no Christ, that his apostolate had been pure silliness, could not have brought him more face to face with chaos. It was too sudden for her to look within for contributing causes. Introspection comes later. At present she could only stare aghast at the ruins of her life, and proceed to shape for herself a temporary existence. On the second day after the trial she found a measure of mental calmness. The past was irrevocable. Gerard's self-revelation was final. There was no Gerard such as he conceived him, her worship had been a futility. She was conscious that love was dead, 
killed outright by lightning. Further, she could not go. Neither could she forecast the consequences of the threatened divorce. Reconstruction for the present was essential. The effort braced her strength. Nature came to her aid. Pride armed her with steadfastness. The fire of suffering steeled her will. She could humble herself no more to Gerard to sue for mercy. In everything henceforward the initiative would lie with him. She throned herself on snow-capped heights. Yet from time to time her warm woman's nature drooped earthward and sought for Hugh. But she shrank tremblingly from meeting him, wrote him a second vague postponement, then regretted it an hour after. She must see him, and that soon, before he encountered Gerard. What would happen if the two men met? Gerard, mad with jealous passion, Hugh blazing with indignation. The gentler elements within her took fright. A month before she would have scouted the idea of violence as preposterous. Bloodshed in private quarrel was a thing in England of the evil and romantic past. But she would have counted as equally unreal the story of the recent sensational incidents in their lives. Now nothing seemed too improbable for possibility. Calais sand stretched wet and blood-stained before her imagination. But still she shrank from meeting Hugh. She lay awake long that night, in the primly furnished room where once she had dreamed so many girlish dreams of the man she was about to marry, and strove to disentangle the complexities of her emotions. She dreaded Hugh at learning Gerard's resolution. A cowardly impulse to send Hugh as mediator between Gerard and herself was strangled at birth by a fierce grip of pride. If she alone could not convince her husband of her fidelity, what mattered his conviction at all? And then the realisation of a that of which she stood self-accused lapped her woman's chastity in fire from head to foot. At last she slept. The morning came, but with it no letter of repentance, as she vaguely hoped, from Gerard. His decision had been final. In the afternoon she went to Sunnington and superintended the packing of her belongings. The maid Jane aided her, glancing every now and then with scared eyes at the set face of her mistress, and dimly comprehending the anguish that lay behind. If Irene had gone through the rooms tearful and sobbing, the girl would have wept in sympathy, but there was that in Irene's manner that held her silent. Only once did Irene break down, and then she was alone in the upstairs room that had been a nursery, and whose high fire-guards, fixtures with which not disturbed when they took over the house, still suggested its former use. And a small child's bed was there, occupied in her time by many little waifs, the associations the room had always evoked came back to her. She threw herself face downward on the bed. "'Thank God! Thank God!' she cried. "'I haven't got a child!' Three days are sufficient for a sensation to become ancient history in London. This truth, like most others, is tame and unobtrusive, and therefore apt to be disregarded by the still bloodshot vision of the hero of the sensation. The man in the street had forgotten Hugh but Hugh overrated his memory and studiously kept out of his way. The West End knew him not. What time he did not remain restless in his flat, he walked or bicycled for miles into the country, filling his lungs with the free, sweet spring air and drowning anxieties in the intoxication of motion and freedom. He had not yet recovered his mental balance, rudely upset by the extraordinary termination of the trial. He knew not whether to call himself arrant knave or blatant fool, 
a sorry Don Quixote, degraded at the instant of self-plumage, or a poor marionette, with limbs jerked ludicrously by destiny. He had faced death for a contemptuous sentiment of personal honour in connection with a woman he despised. Life had been purchased for him at the cost of the honour of the one woman in the world for whom he would have gladly died a thousand deaths. How did his honour stand? Grotesquely tragic under any aspect. An interview with Irene and Gerard would perhaps restore some kind of equilibrium, but hitherto that had been denied. Twice Irene had written a brief, not yet. Delicately commanded a scrupulous obedience. But the truer and still untainted fountains of his heart welled out towards those two whose magnificent devotion transcended all powers of gratitude. And an exquisite sadness of irony was superadded. Would the jury have convicted him after Gardner's handling of the evidence? Cold reason returned an assured negative. But this those two should never know. Meanwhile he hungered for the sight of Irene. A friend visited him on the third morning after the trial, Cahusac, a rosy gold-spectacled man who held a high position on one of the great dailies. He was preparing to ride forth on his quest of the intoxication of budding lanes. "'I must get Holloway out of my blood,' he explained, welcoming his friend. "'I think of nothing but God's air and sunshine. But what brings you from your bed at this hour?' "'Selfishness. I come begging favours. "'I am the last one to confer them.' "'What are your plans?' asked Cahusac, throwing himself into a seat. Hugh made a helpless gesture. "'I am a ruined man, Cahusac.' "'My dear fellow, half the world forgets and the rest forgives. "'I have been about much lately, sounding society. "'The heroic condones, pardon my frankness.' "'And those two? "'Who, the Merriams?' "'Of course they are much discussed.' "'I know,' said Hugh. "'Look, you asked for my plans. "'This is one. "'I enter no house where I should be pardoned "'and the Merriams condemned.' "'You must excuse me, Common,' said Cahusac, somewhat at fault. "'I am aware of delicate ground. "'But why do you speak of them unitedly? "'Merriam has broken no conventions. "'Naturally he will be received everywhere, as usual.' "'He will claim equal privileges for his wife.' "'But they are not continuing to live together, as if nothing had happened.' "'Just as if nothing had happened,' replied Hugh, with the conviction of ignorance. "'And your relations remain unbroken?' "'Certainly,' said Hugh. Cahusac, who had been ascending the scale of mystification, rose from his chair. "'You are three astounding people. The world won't stand that, you know. It's almost too much for me, and I'm not squeamish. No, hang it all. The Marie complaisant. And Merriam is the last man in the world.' beats me altogether. Look here, I'll come back another time. I must digest this first. The cleanly Briton in him was disgusted. Polyandry in Terra del Fuego is ethnologically interesting. In England it wears a different aspect. Hugh broke into a half-laugh, and striding forward, seized Cahusac by the shoulder and swung him round. "'You silly fool!' he cried. "'Do you suppose I'm the man to let you talk like this about my private affairs?' if things were as you think. Has it never entered your head that the story was a lie from beginning to end, that Mrs. Merriam is the purest of women and the most spotless of wives, that it was the desperate stroke of two heroic friends to save a man's life? The journalist's rosy face expressed blank astonishment. He sank upon a chair and muttered incoherent wonder and apology. You are more astounding than ever. 
he exclaimed at last. "'Of course I was taken in. Like the judge, jury, press, public, everybody. I'm heartily thankful.' Suddenly he grew very grave. "'Are you aware that you have committed a blazing indiscretion?' "'In telling you?' "'Yes.' "'I know something of men,' said Hugh, in his grand way. "'You can no more know a man in calm weather than you can know a ship. I myself am not aware what a villain guy could be, if it were worth my while. I'll try to keep straight, but don't trust anyone else with your secret. The blabbing tongue, the ears of the police, that heroic woman had up for perjury. I need say no more.' Hugh walked about the room, agitated. "'You're right.' Of course, I knew it in a vague sort of way, but I've been driven half crazy. The strain of the last month, unimaginable. God knows how I pulled through. You're the first man I've spoken to. I couldn't bear to let you think ill of her, and your kind, honest mug was so refreshing to me. I couldn't help it. I never realised clearly before that, to save her from penal servitude, I must consent to stand by and see the world throw mud at her. What a complicated wreck one's life becomes! as soon as it leaves the rails. "'Don't make yourself miserable with false analogies,' said Cahusek philosophically. "'I'm sick of the rails, and I want to get off them. For that reason I asked what your plans were. I meant for the immediate future.' "'I shall give up the bar,' said Hugh, with a shudder. "'At least criminal work. I said I was a ruined man. That's why.' "'You persist in misunderstanding,' said the other with a smile. "'You forget I came to ask a favour. I'm thinking of going abroad for a holiday, taking it now instead of in the inevitable August. Wife doesn't want to go. I'm companionless. Will you take pity on me? Hugh's impulsive nature responded to all the motives of the kindly act. He seized Cahusek's hand. I won't thank you. There are some deeds of friendship beyond thanks. I'll come with you all the more gladly now that I have told you. But I should like to see the Merriams before we start. Cahusek lifted his eyebrows. "'You haven't seen them yet?' He received discomfort from his glance. He explained vaguely. "'Take your own time,' said Cahusac, again rising to go. "'Things are slack just now. I can get away pretty easily.' The good Samaritan departed, and Hugh remained for some time speculative at the window, looking out into the sunshine. He had known Cahusac and his wife fairly intimately for several years. They were friends, too, of the Merriams but hitherto he had shrouded his private life from them in his customary reserve. He wondered now at the indiscreet expansiveness of which he had been guilty. The secret was safe enough with Cahusac. But would he not have betrayed it just the same to a less scrupulous friend who had come to him that morning with a sympathetic face? The thought gave qualms. The past year had loosened his character. The past month had played havoc with it, had weakened, too, his firm grasp of logical issues. Cahusac had enabled his mind to gain fresh hold. He faced the consequences of Irene's action with the pain of a great dismay. The physical longing for air and sun and forgetfulness in quick motion lured him out of doors. He rode hard through Sunnington and along the Heath Road until he reached the open country. He traversed many miles that day, going along lonely stretches of clear road at racing speed, which brought the thrill into his veins and the lust of physical life that floods thought. He was in that condition of being which, in a more elemental age, would have carried him Bessarc into the joy of battle. Modern civilization substitutes the bicycle. 
Perhaps, after all, we are no more grotesque than our ancestors. The dusk was falling when he returned by the Heath Road, dusty and thoroughly fatigued. He glanced wistfully at the Merriam's house as he sped by. The lights were not yet lit. It bore a strange aspect of desertion. For a moment he felt the impulse to turn and seek admittance, get through the strange first interview, whose indefinite postponement was growing stranger still. Irene's sensitiveness he could understand. Besides, she had written twice. But Gerard's silence was unaccountable. Was he waiting, despite Irene's messages, for him to take the initiative? The temptation was strong, but obedience to Irene prevailed. He went on letting his weary mind drift on trivial matters. He would have a meal, smoke, and sleep like a log. It would be the first sound, unstirring sleep for many weeks. The night before he had had a shivering dream of Minna, which had kept him awake till morning. Where was she? he wondered vaguely. Suddenly a figure crossing the road in front of him caused him to ring his bell. The figure turned. He recognised Irene. In a second he had dismounted and was by her side. She extended her hand, looked at him frankly in the waning light. "'Fate has arranged it for us,' he said. "'If you knew how I had been hungering for speech with you.' "'I couldn't send for you,' she replied. "'There were reasons.' "'I know. I have waited patiently. But you feel what I have to express somehow to you and Gerard?' "'You mustn't see Gerard,' she said, with a little break in her voice. "'I think it would be best if you did not see me, either. What is the good of words to thank me?' We understand each other too well to need them. Couldn't you go away for a holiday somewhere? It would be the best for all of us. You mustn't be hurt. Indeed, you mustn't. But you will do what I ask you? Anything in the wide world. In fact, I'm going abroad with Cahusac. I was only waiting until I had seen you. But I don't understand. He stopped, regarded her anxiously. In spite of the falling darkness, he could see that she looked thoroughly ill. "'I may as well tell you at once,' she said, with quiet abruptness, moving a step nearer to him and laying her fingers on the bicycle handle. "'You are making the same mistake as I did, reckoning on Gerard's acquiescence. He is unspeakably angry. We have quarrelled over it. That is why I didn't send for you. If you could do anything, I should ask you, but it is a matter solely concerning the two of us. Time will set it right.' She spoke so quietly that he never suspected the truth. On the other hand, he could well realise that, Gerard not consenting, the public sacrifice of his honour should arouse his furious indignation. His conception of the breach between Irene and Gerard was sufficient in itself to keep him speechless with pain and remorse. "'It wasn't your fault, dear Hugh,' she said at length, comfortingly. "'I don't think I regret what I did. Gerard will see it in the same light as myself some day.' But now, to cause this division between you, I wish I had pleaded guilty. It would have settled everything at once. The words fell somewhat incoherently. He writhed under a sense of impotence. How could he comfort or reassure her? His wits floundered. Suddenly they came into sharp contact with an idea. Why was she walking away from the house at this hour of the evening? He put the question. "'I am staying with my aunt in Redcliffe Gardens,' she replied calmly. "'It was best to avoid the tension at home.' "'I cannot blame Gerard,' said Hugh, in a low voice. "'And yet I thought—' "'Yes,' said Irene, looking him full in the face. 
We both thought. Hitherto they had been standing still by the roadside. Now she turned and moved onwards, Hugh accompanying her, slowly wheeling his machine, an incongruous element. You can see now why I want you to go away for a little? Only too clearly, he said bitterly. Irene knew that he did not see at all, and cast up at him an instinctive feminine glance, half grateful, half pitying. When shall you start? Practically at once, as soon as Cahusac can get away. Are you anxious that I should go quickly? I should feel easier. Can I come to see you before I leave? Best not. It will make no difference between us. The old friendship remains. They had come to the end of the line of villa residences, to the crossroad that marked the beginning of Sunnington proper. Irene halted. You must ride on, she said, extending her hand. He saw the social necessity. They were a marked couple, and several passers-by had already turned curious eyes upon them. I shall stay abroad until I have your permission to return, he said. She smiled sadly. It would not be her summons that would bring him back from exile. But she nodded an assent. He pressed her hand, murmured a God bless you, and rode off. The interview that each had looked forward to with such trepidation was over. Irene felt somewhat faint from the strain. Deceit was alien to her nature, which ever erred in over-frankness. Yet when he quickly disappeared from her following eyes into the gathering darkness, she gave a little sob of relief, and hurried on at a brisk pace. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 16 "'Tell me, Haraway,' said Gerard, "'you who are the friend of us all, and would like to defend both my wife and Coleman, does her story hold water?' "'I should let things alone for the present,' replied the lawyer cautiously. "'Make investigations, give her for the while the benefit of the doubt.' But there can't be any doubt. The whole thing hangs together. Coleman was over head and ears in love with her before our marriage. He's been openly in love with her ever since. They've been associated in all her confounded schemes and philanthropies. He was always on her tongue and in her thoughts, always in the house when I wasn't there. I remember he wanted to jump down my throat once because I suggested Irene had her faults like others. Look at those poems of his addressed to her. All the same story. This charge of murder is brought against him. His mouth is closed. For a time I didn't believe the woman plea. However, we all agreed there was one. Who could it be? All of us flawed. My wife half dead with anxiety, yet going through it day by day. We know what women can bear when it's a question of concealment. A woman the other day was delivered of a child during a ball, and returned smiling to the ballroom. You saw the case. I don't call Irene's attitude any criterion of innocence. She keeps it up to the end. But when the rope is round his neck, her nerve gives way, and the whole thing comes out. Put upon oath, she gives it cut and dried, as cynically as you please, a woman all over. There's no getting out of it. And I, I am the common mock of England. He spoke quietly, with an air of outraged dignity that won Haraway's sympathy. It's a miserable business altogether, said the latter, biting the end of his quill pen, as he sat in his leathern office chair, pushed back slightly from the table. "'Then you agree with me that her explanation is preposterous?' 
"'The other thing bears the greatest ample probability,' replied Haraway. And thus was Irene judged. Gerald felt relieved. Haraway's opinion was of a certain value. It was sure to be the keynote of that of the Merriam's social circle in which the old solicitor was an influential member, and Gerald was anxious to learn how society would take his divorce. For that purpose he had sought out Haraway in his office and plunged into the midst of things, with a frankness that was not altogether characteristic. He gained his first point, a definite verdict against Irene. He himself believed her guilty, but a lurking, uncomfortable suspicion that proof of her innocence might not sing with his heart's secret wishes made him distrustful of his own judgment. The contemplation of divorce was accompanied by sundry pricks of conscience. A vague fear assailed him that society might take Irene's side. He sought the support of public opinion to bolster up a not-too-stout courage. He had a dim feeling that in spite of his willingly jealous belief in her guilt, he was about to do Irene a great wrong by divorcing her. "'I'm not a revengeful man, Haraway,' he said, after a few moments' silence. "'I'm only anxious to put an end to a tie the continuance of which would be a farce. It is not even as though I were putting her to public shame. She has done that herself already.' "'Then I would not be precipitate,' said Haraway. "'You might feel disposed to forgive her. Such things have happened to men without loss of dignity.' "'I'm not going to forgive her. I don't think she would desire it. The fact is, our marriage has been a sham from the beginning. If I divorce her, she can marry Coleman. I'm not likely, God forbid, to tie myself to a woman again. So it's not for my sake. If I were seeking vengeance, I should keep her legally tied. But I shan't sue for damages.' "'The action would have to be undefended.' "'Precisely,' said Gerard, with a slight flush. Haraway rose and took two or three turns about the room, his hands behind his back. "'I see no other way out of it, Miriam,' he said. "'I was hoping you could forgive her, take her back some time. I'm fond of her. In fact, fond of the three of you, confounded. The whole business has upset me. First the murder affair, now this. Yes, it's best. Let somebody be happy at any rate. You're acting generously, but I'd like you to give her a little grace.' "'Unless time is important.' "'It is important,' said Gerard. "'I want to get away. "'I don't see why I should go on slaving at the bar any longer. "'If it hadn't been for my wife, I should have chucked it long ago. "'I have about six hundred a year of my own. "'Why the deuce should I worry myself?' "'What are you thinking of doing?' "'South Africa. Big game-shooting. "'One of the dreams of my life. "'I'm sick of this atmosphere. "'I want to breathe freely. "'I know Freewintle, the big man at that sort of thing, you know.' He's going out in two or three months. I don't see why I should lose the chance of going with him. So I'd like to set everything straight by then. Haraway nodded his head with mournful assent. I can quite understand. He walked across the room, then back again, and halted before Gerard. But you know, Miriam, I would willingly give a thousand pounds to have your wife proved innocent. I would give her all I have to be able to believe her, returned Gerard but his tone sounded disingenuous in his own ears. "'I'm not going to ask you to act for me professionally,' he added. "'I suppose not,' replied Haraway dryly. They shook hands and parted. Gerard took a long breath as soon as he reached the open air, and the look of dignified sorrow vanished from his face. He walked through Lincoln's Inn fields with a step that was almost jaunty, greatly pleased by his visit.' 
If there had been anything mean or cruel in his proposed action, Haraway would have protested bluntly, for flabbiness of expression was not one of his characteristics. Obviously it was the only thing to be done. The sooner the better. As he turned into Chancery Lane, a child held up to him a basket of violets. He bought a bunch, stuck it in his buttonhole, a thing which he had not done for years, being a man neglectful of spruceness in attire. He felt exhilarated, in holiday mood, experiencing a sensation of freedom from chafing constraints. Two weeks had passed since his furious interview with Irene. He had spent them at his friend Weston's place, alone, for the end of his absence, where he fished, and between the rises meditated on his wrongs. He had spoken to Irene in violent indignation and hatred, brutally, as the coarse-grained man does when he feels himself to be injured. Instinct, that explosion of a long-laid train of a thousand tiny sensations, had directed his blow against her most vital spot, her idealization of himself. He had left her in passionate anger. It was well that he did not encounter Hugh that day. In the calm of the country life his anger cooled down, but it had engendered a crop of sentiments which, when he examined them, turned out to be not altogether disagreeable. As he was not the man to have his senses long led captive by the same woman, the honeymoon fervour of his attachment to Irene had grown cold for some years. The glowing passion of love, therefore, had not been outraged. As a matter of fact, he was tired of her, like thousands of men at the present moment, whom habit and sloth and kind integrity keep dully affectionate to their wives. He was tired of her effusiveness, of her strenuousness, of the high plane of feeling on which she seemed to live, and of her unremitting efforts to drag him thither. He had never felt at ease with her, had been forced to practice a thousand deceptions. To live, in short, a life alien to his nature. In the daily unconscious struggle between two individualities, the stronger and more finely tempered wins. Gerard had yielded simply because he had been afraid to resist. The subconsciousness of this moral flabbiness had always been present. It acted as a forcing-bed for the above-mentioned crop of sentiments. The violets in his buttonhole typified their bursting into riotous bloom, he walked across the strand and down westward along the embankment, his veins tingling. The fresh breeze blowing against the tide raised a myriad ripples that sparkled in the sunshine. A gull that had strayed up river was hovering snow-white against the blue sky. The steamers, with their illusory air of crowded merriment, shot swiftly by and gave a queer sense of the rushing life of liberty. Every man has certain moments of sensitiveness to external surroundings. With Gerard they were rare, but this was one. Life was holding out her promise. The world was before him. He felt magnanimous towards Hugh, almost grateful to him for having given him this opportunity of restarting his existence. He was young still, only five-and-thirty. A recent legacy had put him beyond the necessity of working at an irksome and unremunerative profession. He leaned over the parapet by Somerset House, and in the factories across the water saw the wide-stretching veldts and the lumbering bullock-carts, and all the joys of the longed-for hunter's life. A lingering respectability no longer sought to disguise the fact. He was heartily glad to be freed from Irene. And so it happened that, some days afterwards, while Cahusac was sitting with Hugh before their hotel at Avignon, 
and opening the letters which the swarthy waiter had just brought, he was astonished to see Hugh start to his feet, and, white and trembling with passion, stare at a communication which he dashed presently upon the table. "'The villain! The damned villain!' Cahusac queried mutely through his gold spectacles. "'He's bringing an action for divorce, for divorce against her, do you understand?' "'Don't shout so mad, and sit down,' said Cahusac quietly. Hugh obeyed mechanically, tore at his great moustache, and went on in a voice rendered hoarse by his efforts to keep it within conversational tones. "'He believes that story is proceeding on the strength of it. A woman who idolised him made him her god, the veriest cur would have understood. My god, Cahusac! I'll go back at once and shoot him on sight. He doesn't deserve to live. To cast off a woman like that, by heaven I'll kill him!' "'Don't talk like a madman,' said Cahusac. "'I can't sit here. Come for a turn with me. I shall be better walking.' Cahusac stuffed his correspondence into his pocket and accompanied him out of doors. They passed beneath the frowning mass of the old palace of the popes, with its innumerable towers and machiolated battlements, and reached the outer boulevards. The midday sun beat fiercely down. Below them lay the blue Rhone, winding through this garden of southern France. The sun, the scene, and Cahusac's quiet yet sympathetic common sense gradually calmed Hugh's blazing anger. "'Had you no suspicion that it might come to this?' asked Cahusac, as they walked along under the trees. "'None whatever. Do you think if I had I should have loitered about here? I knew he had quarrelled with her. She told me. I could see nothing unnatural in it. There are some sacrifices beyond the power of the average man. She thought he was equal to herself. I didn't. At least for a day or two I did, just after the trial. Then came disillusion. You were right in what you said about knowledge of men.' One can only test them by tempest. This one has been tested. He's no better, no worse than that fellow over there with the white umbrella and the rolls of fat at the back of his neck. In fact, I was obliged after a time to sympathise with him. What right had I to expect that a man would make such a sacrifice for me? I was powerless to reconcile them. It was her urgent wish that I should disappear for a few weeks, until things got settled but I never for one second thought he doubted. We've been friends from childhood, he and I, intimates. He knows every syllable that has ever passed between his wife and myself. A thunderbolt out of this blue sky could not appall me more than this ghastly news. To tell you a secret, said Cahusac, I saw the clay feet of the idol long ago. A good fellow in his way, the average sensual man. "'The discovery must be killing her,' said Hugh. "'I wonder why she did not tell you before you started.' "'I don't pretend to know. She had her reasons. I'm quite satisfied. I could never put her into the dull category of common women. And to think that that man—Cahusac, he can't believe it of her. Some infernal villainy is at work.' He broke forth again. Cahusac quietly listened out to the torrent of indignation. It held elements of the rhapsodic that interested him. They returned through the town. Hugh rushed into the telegraph office and dispatched a message. "'Are you mad? I am coming.' "'I hope you've done nothing rash,' said Cahusac, who waited for him outside. "'I've told him that I'm coming. I must go back straight, Cahusac. It is treating you miserably. But you see I can't go on. I must see him, put a stop to this infamous business, drag him to his knees before his wife.' 
"'Take a sober man's advice, Coleman,' said the other, "'and have it out with Mrs. Merriam first. Hugh's eyes flashed, and his lips curled in a smile beneath his moustache. Superfluous counsel! His heart hungered for her. There was a spice of irony in his thanks. A few hours later Cahusac accompanied him to the railway station. The final adieu came. "'I owe you a great debt of gratitude, Cahusac,' said Hugh. "'I have enjoyed every minute of the holiday,' replied the other heartily. "'And so have I. It's made a fresh man of me. I can face this now, thanks to you. If it had come on top of all the rest, I believe it would have floored me. A man is only capable of a certain amount of convulsion at a time.' They parted, and the great PLM train carried Hugh swiftly northwards. He had spoken truly. He was under a deep obligation to the quiet, kind-hearted man, whose calm judgment and equable nature formed a complete sedative to the fever of his mind, whose companionship was a cool hand on a hot brow. A great need of expansion had been the reaction from the intense restraint of the month preceding his trial. His thoughts paid Cahusac grateful tribute. A study of timetables suddenly brought him to realisation of the date. It was the anniversary of his wedding day, the first. It was scarcely credible. The disastrous twelve-month, viewed in retrospect, seemed a space of many years. The memory of the first wedded kiss of Minna's young, ripe lips came faintly as if from a far past, yet not without a spasm of revulsion, the memory of a succubus. Elemental sex feelings, determining hatred, bend a man's judgment of a woman to elemental fierceness. For this reason women are often beaten. He tried to shake off the haunting sense of her caresses, to bury her existence in oblivion. But she was too essential a factor in this ruin of lives amongst which he was walking. What had become of her? He clenched his hands together, and wished that she was dead. Yet what was she doing? The petty and incongruous question teased him. A train whirred past. Was it a strange fatality, or an equally strange telepathic subconsciousness? In that train was Minna, convalescent after a long illness, being carried on to Marseille, where she was to catch the steamer to Smyrna. So husband and wife passed each other in the darkness, on the first anniversary of their wedding day, and the soul of each was filled with passionate repudiation of the other. And in either case the starry woman, whom one worshipped and the other dreaded and envied, was the determining cause. End of chapter 16 Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.